Hello, folks. Welcome back to WVU Reads. I'm your host, Jeff Hilsebeck. Today in the studio, I have Melissa Gegenbach, who is the program director of the West Virginia Innocence Project at the WVU Law School, and Hope DeLapp, who is the Justice Franklin D. Cleckley Fellow, also at the West Virginia Innocence Project. I'm so glad you both could be here, and very much looking forward to hearing about your work. Congratulations also on your recent award from the Morgantown Human Rights Commission. Oh, thank you very much. Very cool. It was very, very cool. Um, And Melissa, I was just noticing that you said when you received the award that the award would allow the project not only to provide good representation for those who have been wrongfully convicted, but also a platform to educate about and address the inequalities that exist within our criminal justice system. And that's an issue that's important to me also. And so my hope is that this conversation can be part of that effort at education and addressing those inequalities that you were talking about. So again, thank you guys for coming in here. Thanks for having us. I thought it would be nice for people just to get a little bit of background about the Innocence Project nationally and then also here at WVU. So could we start there? Sure. So the Innocence Network, uh, actually, the Innocence Project is what everybody thinks about when they hear innocent, you know, innocence and in the legal system. Mm-hmm. And that was started in 1992 by Barry Sheck and Peter Newfield. Mm-hmm. And they are out of New York City and the Cardozo School of Law. And they have really done a great job of kind of raising awareness for the wrongfully convicted and what a <clears throat> problem it is around the United States and actually the world. Mm-hmm. So we um, at the WVU College of Law, the, the we're associated with the clinical law program, which has been in, I think this year will be our 40th year, wow. um, where we try to provide practical uh, legal experience for third-year law students. And there's always been a bit of a criminal law bent to it mm-hmm. because Professor Marjorie McDermott has... A, she's the clinical director, um, has had a lot of, uh, that, that's her background. Okay. Um, she was a public defender for years. And, and in 2012, they hired uh, someone to come in and be the kind of the director, and we became the West Virginia Innocence Project. Mm-hmm. And then we joined this great worldwide network of innocence mm-hmm. programs and projects called the Innocence Network. Yeah. And that really allows us to kind of expand our reach. It yeah. gives us the opportunity to co um to, to talk to people uh, about issues that we're having, um, write amicus briefs, which are friend of the court briefs. Mm-hmm. Um, they I didn't ha- know that's how it was pronounced. I always it read it amicus briefs. Well, it could be. That's how uh, I pronounce it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. okay. So this, well, is you some, know, this is a matter of debate. Latin is hard. Yeah, I never learned it. So. <laughs> it could be my West Virginia interpretation <laughs> of it. Mm-hmm. Either way. Okay, so... So what about what about them? Um, Sorry. So so there's like a brief bank. Uh, uh-huh. We can reach out and ask other people to write briefs uh, on behalf of our clients. Uh, they do an innocence conference, which moves around from year to year okay. um, and just kind of raises awareness. Yeah. Um, it gives everyone an opportunity to kind of join together. Yeah. Um, and and are, are these all law schools? Then are some, all the projects sometimes. affiliated with law schools? Or they're not all affiliated with law schools, but. I think the vast majority operate as legal clinics at a law school because law students are a great way to gain extra staff Mm -hmm. um, and avid investigators. Um, And so you can use uh, either college students, some innocence projects in the past and currently operate at the college level, but 
the vast majority, I think, are at the law school level and utilize law students like we do as uh, attorneys on the case, supervised mm-hmm. by actual project staff. But it's a great partnership with law students and mm-hmm. uh, it gives them real world experience and then you can utilize them to expand your staff mm-hmm. it's always a problem for mm-hmm. innocence projects mm-hmm. the demand is greater than the yeah. number of practitioners yeah the other i think good benefit of the innocence network and this is something that we are currently um, utilizing is that the multiple projects uh, that are connected through the innocence network allow us to represent co-defendants together because so for example we're the only innocence project in west virginia and if we have a case with multiple co-defendants we can't represent at the same time all of those Mm co-defendants and so you can bring in another innocence project project from out of state or within the state to represent another one of those co-defendants either in a joint defense agreement or separately and so that uh-huh. prevents those conflicts from uh-huh. occurring uh-huh. right so i think that's another big benefit it is so currently we have a case um, down in cabell county and we represent one of the co-defendants um, the exoneration project out of the university of chicago school of law represents a one co-defendant the um, center for wrongful convictions out of Northwestern, also in Chicago, represents one, and then the fourth co-defendant is represented by the Innocence Project. Wow! So it's it's um, it's it's very it's it's impressive when we walk into court. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't want to sound all you know puffed up no, because but, certainly uh, I am team. not. I am not. But when we walked in uh, for this hearing, you know, I mean, there were five attorneys, yeah. like six support staff, who <clears throat> were our third-year law students, but they were all dressed up fancy. They looked great. And, you know, we're hauling in all these boxes and boxes of boxes of material. Um, And I, 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 that's, that's the way I, I, I'm my soapbox. That's the way all habeas and all um, post-conviction hearing should be. I mean, you should give it your all. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You should have a robust defense. And I think having that network of innocence projects who can work together allows us to do that in those multi-defendant cases. Okay. So I have several questions about (laughs) everything that you've just said. Maybe most, most immediately habeas. Yes. What is that? Okay. So in West Virginia, um, we are so when and when someone is convicted, mm-hmm. um, they uh, are sentenced to generally our clients are are sentenced to an extremely long period of time in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, in West Virginia, one of the post conviction remedies uh, or re- remedies mm-hmm. is to be able to file what's called a petition for writ of habeas corpus. What that is is basically a civil remedy. Mm-hmm. So it's it's I call it. It's kind of quasi-criminal, quasi-civil. So it's under the rules of civil procedure. Um, But... It's tech, but you're talking about all kinds of rules of criminal procedure. So that's why it's kind of mixed. Yeah. Um, You uh, can file that, and you get to attack any constitutional uh, wrongdoings that occurred in your trial. Okay. So, okay, so the big ones. It is. It's. It is an appeal, but it's. It's focused not on trial error, but on mm-hmm. constitutional error. Mm-hmm. It's like what the we, makeup of the jury. 
Uh, yes, like makeup that. of the jury, right? Because that would be um, potentially a Batson issue mm-hmm. if there wasn't a, a good cross section or if the prosecution took out all the African Americans and struck them from mm-hmm. the jury. You might, so that could possibly be mm-hmm. one. Um, a large one is ineffective assistance of counsel. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So if they weren't represented properly, because you have a right under the U.S. and West Virginia constitutions mm-hmm. to a fair trial. Mm-hmm. Uh, another big one um, that is newly discovered evidence which is kind of where we uh, we come in a lot. Yeah. Uh, the Innocence Project does, um, and most uh-huh. Innocence Projects. DNA evidence. Well, DNA like evidence that. or, um, you know, we attack eyewitness identifications mm-hmm. or fingerprint technology. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a whole yeah. host of cases that we look cl- closely at that, that tend to provide more wrongful convictions than other cases. Yeah. And so what what is the sort of best outcome of a habeas case. So you, you, you don't have the criminal conviction overturned in that case, but you have a sentence reduced or well, there could commuted? Be, or? There could be numerous uh-huh. remedies, um, but you touch on something that uh, we struggle with mm-hmm. because the typical remedy is when you win a, a, a habeas hearing or a petition and, you're, and it's granted by the circuit court, the typical remedy is a retrial. Uh Right. And so at that point, double jeopardy does not attach. So there could be additional charges that are added. So you have to be very careful when you counsel your clients about sometimes winning is losing Mm -hmm. because you win, but Mm -hmm. then you go back and the state tax on additional charges and then you go back to trial and you actually end up spending more time in prison. So you have to be really careful um, about about the remedy that you're asking for. Yeah. Is it are you able to anticipate those additional charges based on the person's the clients? Yes. You have access to any records that are there. Yes. And, yes. And their we, story, obviously. That's a big one of our efforts uh, when we are first screening an applicant's case mm-hmm. is trying to collect all of those records and the files, which can be an uphill battle sometimes, either if it's just an old case trying to get those circuit clerk records or trying to track down previous counsel and get Mm -hmm. files from them. Mm -hmm. But normally, if we are at the stage of drafting, filing, advising clients about a habeas, then we have all of those records and can make those calculations for if we win this on the back end, this is what you're looking at for a retrial or possible new charges or sentencing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how do you select the clients that you work with? Do they apply? Do you seek them out? How does that go? Right. So we have a about a 10-page application. Sometimes um, people who are in prison write to us mm-hmm. and request an application, or they'll just ask us a question and we'll send them an application. Uh, but that's generally where we start is that application process. And yeah. then I will screen cases, Hope screens cases, our law students screen cases. And we're very fortunate that we have a lot of interest in our project. So we get some undergraduate interns who come mm-hmm. up um, and don't get paid and mm-hmm. don't get um, college credit. They just come and volunteer, yeah. and and we're uh, they they with a lot of supervision. They also look over uh, the screening forms. Yeah. So when we are screening, what we're looking for is was there a trial or was it a plea? Mm-hmm. We're looking for um, has the direct appeal been Can completed? Can I interrupt that for a second? Yes, a plea would be that would be a plea, harder. A plea to, of or guilty. It's more yes. likely that that it'll be like. Do you want them to have pled? 
No. Or not. It is harder to challenge a guilty plea. Mm -hmm. It's not impossible, and there is a a doctrine in order to challenge those guilty pleas, but it is much harder. Mm -hmm. It's an uphill battle. Yeah. Yes. Okay, Um, sorry to interrupt. No, that's a great question. So um, then other things that we look for are what type of conviction was it? Was it one of our hot-button issues it was it arson was it shaken baby uh you know was there false identification um is there potentially dna evidence that Mm -hmm. we can retest the hardest cases that we have are cases of usually um some kind of like sex abuse where typically the the people who are applying are spending you know 40 50 60 years in prison unfortunately there's no dna evidence you know it was a he said she said situation and so we're we're depending on a witness recantation mm-hmm. um to try to come up with something to to attack that conviction yeah. so unfortunately we we generally turn turn down a lot of of cases you yeah. know we're looking for that needle in the haystack because our resources are so limited we have to be very careful about um, the cases that we take uh, we also look for cases that don't have the, that the um, that the applicant doesn't already have an attorney because mm-hmm. we cannot represent someone if they are already mm-hmm. having a ha- having an att- if they have already been appointed an attorney which is an important f- um, point in West Virginia we're very lucky that for the first petition for writ of habeas corpus they're entitled to court-appointed counsel so that's really good for the majority of people who are in prison who want to attack their convictions it's a little rough on us mm-hmm. um, because we never want to step on right. on someone's toes uh, another attorney's toes so we're pretty careful about that um, so when we look at the screening process that's the other thing that we look for to see where in the process of attacking their conviction they are mm-hmm. and do they already have counsel mm-hmm but because um, if they have filed a previous habeas and were appointed counsel, um, sometimes we can work with that previously appointed counsel to acquire files or figure out what issues in the case there are. Yeah. So they can often be very helpful. Right. And are these often people who have already been incarcerated for a long time? Are they recently incarcerated? Well, um, or is there a big range? So there's kind of a sweet spot. Mm-hmm. We we need them to have been convicted and. Uh, um, their direct appeal completed before we can really look at their at their cases. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, or fortunately for them, often they've already filed an initial petition for writ of habeas corpus um, before they find us. So most of the people who have applied to us have generally had a direct appeal and already won at least one petition for writ of habeas corpus and then um, have been in prison for 5, 10, 15, 20 mm-hmm. years, mm-hmm. which is really hard. Um, you know, we have a client who we have a lot of evidence showing that he did not commit um, the crime for which he was convicted, which was an arson. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's been in prison for 12 years and we're still battling to try to get him out. Mm-hmm. Because things move slowly things through move, the system? Things move very slowly. And before we became involved, he had a direct appeal. He had a habeas. They filed um, a habeas in the federal system. Mm-hmm. Um, and bef- and so we kind of, be by the time we 
we we learned about him and became involved, you know, he'd already been pretty far down yeah. uh, the path towards trying to attack his wrongful conviction. Yeah. And that brings up why we are looking for newly discovered evidence. Because if you have already, uh, what it's called, is exhausted those remedies, mm-hmm. then you have to have something new right. to get back into court. Right. And so sometimes we can file more typical claims if we can get in early and file the first habeas and not have to amend anything uh, or come as a successive petition. But if they have already litigated their case, and often they do because uh, they're innocent, they want to challenge at every stage they can, they do have appointed counsel, but then we have to look for something new so Mm -hmm. we can get our foot back into the court. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. It's just I'm struck listening to both of you talk uh, just how complex the legal system is. And I'm imagining, you know, for different people what it's like to navigate that. I mean, to, to be incarcerated and to be learning about the legal system there through, I guess, the prison library and other other people, other, other inmates um, and their lawyers. And, right. Um, And that's exactly it. I I think that a lot of our clients or the people that we screen um, and people who are in prison start the start the process, start the trial process and the direct appellate process really leaning on their own attorneys. Yeah. And then when they're sitting in in prison, they realize I really need to take control of my own case. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have one case that we're investigating um, actually uh, jointly with the new habeas division of the public defender services. And he has gotten um, to the point where he's been appointed as co-counsel in his own case, which I've never seen before. Wow. Uh, So that's, that's pretty, (laughs) that's pretty interesting, but I have learned. So before I joined the innocence project, I did uh, just post-conviction habeas work. Mm -hmm. So I have, um, so I represented people who normally we wouldn't have taken, like the West Virginia Innocence Project would not have taken, uh, would not have accepted their case. But um, I I learned through that process that when something came across my desk, I would ask who helped you with this? Because Mm -hmm. there are some amazing, they they call themselves jailhouse lawyers. Right. Mm -hmm. um, Or legal legal representatives. That's also another another term Mm -hmm. that I've heard. There's some amazing people doing some some work, some amazing work coming out of inmates. And they're smart. Mm -hmm. And what I really appreciate about the way they attack a case is that they're not bound by kind of the way lawyers are taught in law school. They're thought they, you know, they think outside the box. Oh, They're creative and yes. very creative. And so that is, is a way that I can, sometimes I, you know, I, I listen to what they say. Yeah. I'm like, wow, you know, that, that could really work. Or they're so good at finding like really obscure cases yeah. that maybe you wouldn't think to look for. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. I wonder if there's like scholarship on that or if law schools ever have former jailhouse lawyers come in and talk to students as a sort of like, here's a way to think creatively about. I, that's a great idea. That's, that's really a, that's really a good idea. And that we may have to look, look into that um, further, but there's uh, people who've been exonerated nationally who are now in law school. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, unfortunately, his name escapes me. He's a really great guy. I meet him at I meet him once a year at the Innocence Conference. And mm-hmm. Just passed the bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's 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 amazing how 
they kind of are, are able to take take these really complex issues and kind of distill them down to what's really important. Yeah. Think outside the box and come up with some novel novel yeah. ways to attack their convictions. We have one client um, who's since been released at, looked over our application. Mm-hmm. Because he told us the application is too difficult. He would help people fill out ah, the application. Yeah. So we sent it to him. He looked over it. He gave us some really good suggestions. We really simplified it. Uh, and I think it's been effective. Yeah. Yeah, I just, um, I just over the break, I read this book, Solitary, which is um, by a guy named um, Albert Woodfox, who was one yes. of the Angola Three. And, I've and, met him. Oh, wow. Yes. He was at the Innocence Conference in Atlanta. Huh. And he had just been released. I could not believe... I could not, it was, it's such an honor to mm-hmm. get to walk up and shake someone's hand who has been through what Mr. Woodfox has been through. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a sort of a horror story, mm-hmm. but also an incredible testament to sort of human strength and character. Yes, yes. Um, but I, I bring it up um, because his lawyers are so important to him in that story, and the way he talks about them is uh, obviously in, in helping him navigate this case but also as emotional support you know as people who have faith in his innocence and are visiting him and are helping him maintain contact with the outside world i mean is that i imagine this work to hear you talk about it sounds very technical you're filing briefs and there are appeals and, and 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 you're looking over how you know however many applications but there's this real human side to it um, is that uh, is that hard? Is that invigorating? Like, wh- what is that part of the work like for you guys? I think it's both. I think mm-hmm. it is challenging because these are hard cases, tough facts, but also people who have been in prison for lengthy sentences and or who are currently confined in um, the the queues at Mount Olive where we visit where uh, it's a max security prison and that is not in general population so some of our clients we have difficulty communicating with uh, Mm -hmm. and they don't see a lot of other people so the queue is like the shoe or uh, the box yes you're not apparently it's inhumane to refer to it as solitary or law or or the shoe Mm -hmm. um the the inmates themselves refer to it as lockup and or jail, which I think is interesting. Um, jail I jail. Uh, frankly, yes. frankly, I mean, whatever the prison system is calling it currently, it does it's solitary. It's they solitary are, confinement. Yes, yeah. one of our clients said to our students, and it was very powerful. He's been in lockup for almost two years, and we have another one who's been in lockup for almost eight years. Mm. So he said, "Go home, go into your bathroom if it has no windows." shut the door and sit in there for 24 hours. Wow. And then you can leave for one hour and then go back for another, tw- you know, another 24. Yeah. I mean, it's powerful. And I don't know how, um, I mean, this is another huge soapbox issue for me. It's like, how are we supposed to be rehabilitating yeah. people um, when we're treating them this way? Yeah. We have one client who are really working to get released because of really good evidence of his innocence, and he's currently in solitary confinement. Mm-hmm. And to me, I cannot imagine releasing someone straight from solitary confinement, mm-hmm. and that is a huge issue to me. There's no transition, and so I, we do deal with tough situations for our clients or with health issues, mm-hmm. um, and just generally, even for our clients who aren't 
incarcerated in solitary confinement who are just in the prison, yeah. it's still so hard to visit them and then to leave and they can't come with us. You know, mm-hmm. we hope to someday bring us out, yeah. bring them out with us, but not that day. And I think that that is hard for us. It's hard for our students. I think it's probably very difficult for the clients to see us leave. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that was an important emphasis this year was to visit as much as possible. Oh, really? Because they don't get a lot of contact. It's hard for family to visit them. Mm-hmm. Often these prisons are not in an area where it's readily accessible to their family. Uh, and so I think trying to have FaceTime with them is important. And you can learn a lot more than you can just with letters, which is how it's easiest to communicate with them. And we try to write them a lot of letters or setting up legal phone calls that can't be recorded. Yeah. Um, but you learn a lot from speaking with them face-to-face about their case, but also just about them. And it's been really great to just getting to know our clients more. And I think that's valuable for the students as well. Mm -hmm. And I hope I completely agree. It is is both exhilarating and exhausting. You know, that 3 a.m. when you're laying, you know, you wake up and you're worried about something. Yeah. Um, You know, that that happens. That happens a lot. But it's balanced out by... Um, you know, getting to see a, a, a client walk out of prison. Yeah. You know, I will never forget seeing that and being there. Yeah. Um, the joy on his face, the joy on his family's face. Um, one of the funniest things that ever happened to me in the legal system was, and kind of funny, but kind of sad at the same time was... Um, our client was released. He walks out of prison and his brother is so excited. He hands him a cell phone to call his father mm-hmm. and our client just looks, he just looks at the, he said, what is this? Mm-hmm. He'd been in for uh, 10 years. Right. He'd ne- I mean, he'd probably seen something on, like it on TV, but he didn't know how to, how to work a cell phone. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's, I mean, it's poignant. It's, 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 wonderful work it is exhausting work yeah. but i'm i feel incredibly privileged to be able to do this and i'm really glad that the college of law is so supportive of our clinical law program yeah. i completely agree and i think that's also the great thing about the network and then mm-hmm. the annual innocence network conference is that this work it makes you into a family mm-hmm. and i think it bonds lawyers with other lawyers that they work on these year-long cases right. with but then there's also that really strong bond between clients and lawyers and getting to see exonerees again uh, I got to see some of the people whose cases I worked on in Chicago at the last um, Innocence Network conference. And it was amazing getting to see them again, seeing how they're thriving, being out of prison now. But also it was as a student, it made a big impression on me how important the supervising attorneys I was working with were to their clients. Mm-hmm. They Once they were released, they were part of their weddings. They mm-hmm. were a huge part of their life and really made... Yeah. Uh, an impact and I think that that's what drives me to do this work is that you can make a difference Mm -hmm. and the clients really appreciate that and then I appreciate that they make a difference in my life as Mm -hmm. well and that I learn from them. Mm -hmm. I think it's important that as many people as possible interact with the prison system a little bit because it's it's invisible. I mean there are jails and prisons everywhere and yet nobody knows what they're like or what's going on inside of them. Um, And and I think that's a real problem. How long will a case typically take, you know, from start to finish? And, um, and does success only mean that the, the client is released or there are sort of, is there, are there other types of victories along the way or? Yeah. Um, 
Yes to both of those. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, a case can take... When I was doing a court-appointed work um, post-conviction, I was just telling Hope, I, I would try to get up to an evidentiary hearing within a year. But when you're working with students, that's not... Um, it's not expected that it's going to be that quick. And as a matter mm-hmm. of fact, one thing we tell the, um, the uh, people who are in prison that we work with, that this might take a little bit longer and that if they're not willing to wait, then maybe they need to pursue court-appointed counsel because we completely understand that sitting in prison is not an ideal situation, yeah. especially if, you're, if you've been wrongfully convicted. The students uh, work diligently and they work very hard, but there's they're only there for nine months. And then, you know, we have a, a summer hiatus. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hope and I continue to work on the cases during during the summer, but at the same time, we recognize that it's a legal clinic and that it's supposed to be a learning opportunity for the students as well. Yeah. So we're constantly trying to balance those those two yeah. um, those two interests. So uh, so generally, our cases take a lot longer, two to three years. Uh, one question for you, Melissa. Uh, earlier in the conversation, you, you mentioned hot button issues. It's one of the things that you are sort of paying attention to when you're screening for clients. And you, you mentioned arson and and baby baby shaking. Yes, no, shaking baby, uh, shaking baby in particular. Um, why are those two types of cases particularly hot button? Uh, Be- so the legal system has a love hate relationship with science. Okay. Right. So uh-huh. science is amazing. It's yeah. constantly changing. And I love that about science is that they're never satisfied with the answer that they get. They are constantly testing and pushing and, and making sure um, that that their reasoning is sound and they're pushing forward. Mm-hmm. The legal system abhors change. So the mm-hmm. two so so the two things are often in, in conflict. You know, the science which is changing and the court system which abhors change. Right. So, but prosecutors often love to use science to get convictions because it's it sounds great. I mean, Very if you convincing. can get someone in a white coat to come up and testify, <laughs> I mean, that's awesome, it's right? It's like CSI. That's <laughs> funny. Exactly. It's like CSI. Uh-huh. And so, um, so what happens is, is that prosecutors are using science to get convictions. And then the science is changing and learning and evolving and getting better, but the court system isn't recognizing that change. So some of the places that we're looking are, so arson um, in particular is is one where there was a lot of what we call junk science, especially in the the beginning, Mm -hmm. uh, when they were starting to use all this arson arson technology. So you have someone who takes a couple of courses in fire science and then thinks that they can go and read the scene and tell you what whether there's a, this this fire was intentionally set or there mm-hmm. was an ignitable liquid. The problem is is that often especially in like the 80s and 90s and some, even even to the 2000s some of these 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 hypotheses have now been debunked yeah. um, by science continuing to test and change. So so often if you get these convictions you can go back and look and see where the error occurred, that yeah. maybe there was false testimony, which at the time they thought was valid, but right. is now has not has is now false. Yeah. Um, and so we can go in and, and try to attack those convictions. Sometimes we're 
sometimes we're successful. Where we've been the most successful is when we were able to retest and show that there wasn't, for example, a, an, an, an ignitable um, fluid, yeah, yeah, fluid yeah. right, used at the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, where we've been less uh, uh, successful is going in and trying to argue that the science has changed to the point where the 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 testimony that was done in, at tri- at the trial level was now uh, incorrect. Right. So sometimes the sometimes the courts are less likely to grant a petition on on that kind of argument. Mm-hmm. And similarly with with shaken baby, um, there are some really good books out there and a couple of really good. Um, documentaries that kind of kind of talk about the advent of shaken baby Mm -hmm. um but a lot so it used to be that if you took a baby and you shook a baby that that the the uh, sloshing of the brain because of the the delicate nature of the neck um, would create enough force the same amount of force as like a car accident or a fall from uh you know a multi-story building like that's the kind of testimony that would come out in these trials and what they realized is is that um and and it would also be that there would be no outside um, impact on the body. So there would be no bruising, there would be no broken bones, yeah. the neck would be perfectly fine, but it was just the forces of the shaking and the brain moving within the skull was enough to cause what they called the triad, which is brain swelling, retinal hemorrhaging, and bleeding in the brain. And science, specifically biomechanical science, has shown that that is not actually possible that there needs to that and, and of course what we're not we're not saying that there isn't child abuse yeah. but what we're saying is is that if you're seeing what there's what what used to be testified to is that if you saw those three symptoms that it automatically meant that that baby had been shaken and so they don't look for alternate con- you know they don't look for for illness they don't look mm-hmm. for you know other things that would cause it yeah. and then the parent then becomes the target of the investigation mm-hmm. And those can be really um, um, difficult to try to take care of for in, in a post-conviction realm um, because really those you have to go back and try to find the actual source of the, the, the problem with the child in the first place. So maybe they were born you know, mm. with some kind of disease that went undiagnosed or maybe when they looked at the imaging of the brain that, um, that they misdiagnosed you mm-hmm. know, the, the way that the, the blood was coming through the brain. Um, and and so, so those are two um, hot buttons that we yeah. definitely look at. Well, and, the, and the, the, the outcome is so awful generally yes yes and, and the brain just kind of short circuits i think yeah. yes um, yes and wants a quick answer for right how so that could happen right so there's a big divide in the medical community so a, you know there are a lot of doctors that say shaken baby is still a thing mm-hmm. it is still an adequate medical diagnosis and we call it kind of uh medico legal because doctors are are not only saying this is the medical diagnosis, but also what you know the the what caused it, right? Which was a cr- some criminal act, right? right? And so it so right. the lines really get blurred right. when you're dealing with with child abuse and, and shaken baby syndrome, right? Because the doctors are actually testifying that it was intentional, which is the mens rea element or the mental state. So they're not just saying that they diagnosed these three symptoms. Mm-hmm. They're saying they diagnose these three symptoms, and those symptoms can only be caused by the intentional shaking of a child, which mm-hmm. is murder. Mm-hmm. And so you're getting 
the treating physician as the one and only basically right. prosecutorial witness to prove the murder case. Right. And so that's And, and why. A, a doctor is an expert that we can all agree on as someone we trust. Even people, I think, who distrust experts generally still probably think of their doctors as trustworthy and you want doctors to be yes and you want doctors to be looking for signs of abuse definitely but you don't want them to be i don't think on the prosecution team Uh, Mm -hmm. there are task forces looking for uh, cases of shaken baby and i think that that is the troubling mix between Mm -hmm. the legal and the medical communities when you get doctors doing the job of the police trying to find parents who yeah. shook their child to death when the what they're looking for might not even be an indication of what they're saying it is. It could be caused by natural causes or trauma at birth, many mm-hmm. other things. Well, and, and Hope, you mentioned intention, and that just seems like one of the most vexing things in 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 like in law and in convictions is a sort of assessing someone's intention right so what happens is someone has a child who stopped breathing they call for help they take the the child into the into the um, medical into the ER mm-hmm. and then the doctors come out and start asking well what happened? And so as a parent, you're thinking, oh my gosh, okay, so let me think. So I bumped the baby's head against the door when I uh, was putting the baby in the car seat. Maybe that happened. Or maybe you dropped the baby. I mean, not intentionally, but maybe the baby fell or maybe the baby got knocked over by a dog. And so you're trying to come up and rack your brain because you want to help the doctor. Yeah. You want to help your child. Right. You want to solve the pro- right? right. You want to help them treat your child. Right. right. The problem then is that becomes a confession. Right. So now you've confessed hmm. to injuring your child, yeah. and now you know you're you're on trial. Yeah. Um, and so 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 just to back up. So yeah. So we've got arson. We've got um, shaken baby syndrome that we look for. We also look for um, cases of maybe eyewitness misidentification. Mm-hmm. Um, we look for cases where DNA evidence was used improperly. Mm-hmm. One, uh, a new junk science that has come out um, more recently is called hair microscopy, where the FBI was coming and testifying that, you know, falsely, that they could compare hair to, to hair samples okay. um, and we're drawing wild conclusions hmm. about these hair samples um, that that turned out to not be scientifically valid so uh, that's sometimes it wasn't even human hair that they okay. were saying matched and uh-huh. that's the <laughs> the troubling word matched uh, the defendant in a lot of cases or the victim okay. if it was on the defendant for example mm-hmm. and it turned out to be dog hair or some other type of so that was fiber. The, that was the problem with that science, was they were claiming that they could uh, match hair that they couldn't actually match. The big problem that the FBI has admitted to is that they were testifying inaccurately. So they were using terminology that they couldn't support scientifically, or mm-hmm. they were saying this is a hundred percent certainty, or they were using statistics in a misleading mm-hmm. way. And so they have said that their own experts testified inaccurately in many mm-hmm. cases, but they were also responsible for training many state 
experts. Mm -hmm. And so they have offered to retest using DNA evidence. So now testing the hair, not just comparing it under a microscope, but testing it for DNA profiles. They've now offered to do that in cases where either their expert testified or they were responsible for training the expert that testified falsely or Mm -hmm. inaccurately or Mm -hmm. misleadingly Mm -hmm. in that case. But prosecutors don't always take them up on that offer. And so that's when we come in to move um, Mm -hmm. and we have to file a motion to move for DNA testing of those samples to see if it's actually if the the DNA supports what the experts said at Mm -hmm. trial. And those samples will have been saved. Hopefully. Mm-hmm. A lot of our work investigating the cases is not just seeing if we can test something in a new manner um, with the always advancing DNA technology, but also trying to find that evidence, see if it's been preserved in a way that we can test it. Uh, so that is a big part of what we do and what can take a long time is mm-hmm. trying to track down that evidence. And I think that's especially challenging in cases where multiple agencies were involved or they yeah. moved the evidence to some other location in a different county so trying to track down that evidence can be a time-consuming task um, and very frustrating yeah i imagine a lot of people want to move on and your job is to say no wait we can't move on we need to go back well the finality of the conviction they want they want the conviction to be final yeah um and so Usually we're, we have pretty good luck finding finding things, mm-hmm. but you know cor- we have to go from courthouse to courthouse to courthouse in each jurisdiction, and each courthouse has a little bit different procedure. And sometimes they might keep the evidence, uh, and sometimes they don't keep the evidence. It kind of depends on on space issues. Yeah. Uh, strangely, we have a lot of flooding apparently, and so they, things get stored in basements. And mm. so several cases, you know, the entire record has been destroyed um, through water and they had to throw it out. Yeah. Um, and so so tracking down evidence and looking for that that kind of stuff is, um, is, is definitely a big part of what we do. But Hope touched a little bit more about the, the tension between forensic science and, and the law, and especially with the hair microscopy. I really think it's it it's comes because the legal profession is asking science scientists to come testify in ways that maybe scientists aren't comfortable testifying. Yeah. They're pushing the boundaries of what a scientist can and should say mm-hmm. based on what scientists normally do, which is a, it's a probabilistic right. comparison, right? And they're saying that this is probably the profile of the defendant but what the prosecutor wants the expert to say is that's a hundred percent match to that defendant and that's what the jury wants to hear right but that isn't always what the expert says or it isn't what they should say Right. right and then you know we're lawyers we're not scientists and so sometimes when we hear you know, probabilistic genotyping and we hear, you know, mm-hmm. DNA and right. we hear, you know, alleles and all of these scientific words, our brains start short circuiting um, because, you know, we're lawyers because we didn't want to go to medical school. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. And so, and so, you know, we kind of tune out. So yeah. it's really important. And part of what we're so happy about being able to come here and talk about or talk to other attorneys or teach law students is, is to, you know, be critical, be right. skeptical, 
think about what the prosecutor is trying to say. Think about what that um, forensic witness is trying to say and just be skeptical. Yeah. Give it a Google. See if it wow. works out. See if there's someone who said, no, I don't think so. Right. Because I can guarantee for every scientific principle that someone posits, there's going to be somebody else right. in the scientific community. He's like, nah, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't agree with that at all. Mm-hmm. And that could be useful. Yeah. Yeah. Lawyers, uh, and we try, we try to get our students to not be scared of math because uh, I think- I'm scared of math. Oh, me too. Lawyers <laughs> numbers and I swear our eyes glaze (laughs) over people yes um, but we can't always convert numbers to language um, Mm -hmm. accurately and I think that's the problem a lot of lawyers have and prosecutors but also defense attorneys of trying to take statistics or or numbers or that probability match um, and what the experts are really certain about and then trying to convert that into legal language or into language and then convert that um, from that kind of legal talk to then something that the jury can understand. Mm -hmm. But during that translation process, we get farther and farther away from what science is sure about. And we get into that gray area of misleading testimony or just not understanding how the the math works or mm-hmm. how to explain those scientific terms or those scientific certainties in a way that the jury would understand or even in a way that the lawyer would understand. Yeah. Um, I've been really impressed in one of our cases with a lawyer who's willing to say, I didn't understand those scientific principles and I was misleading when talking about that in closing. And I think that that is really powerful and I think we all have to acknowledge our weaknesses when it comes mm-hmm. to math and science and work with the experts to learn better how to convey those scientific truths to juries in a way that doesn't come across as that's 100% match with the defendant. There right. can be no challenge to that right. because like Melissa said, there's always a way to challenge scientific evidence. Yeah, yeah even DNA, right? I mean, people think, oh, DNA of is course. the gold standard. Yeah. And I, you know, it's been referred to that as, as the gold standard, but there is... A, DNA is fallible because humans are involved. So you always have to look for contamination. Uh And then you have to look for how the DNA is evaluated. What kind of conclusions did the human scientist make when they were looking at, at the results? Because you have the DNA... And then you run it through a machine and you do short tandem repeats and you do all this fancy scientific things. And then you have a human being who's looking at those results that are spit out of a computer and drawing conclusions about, is this an allele or is this an artifact? Mm -hmm. Is this actually here or did this just show up? Mm -hmm. Is it right? And then, so so DNA has actually tried to move towards using computer models to try to v- take out the, the human um, variable. Yeah. The problem with that is humans make the models, right? <laughs> right. And so so then you have to kind of look at how is this model created, yeah. um, and and what data did it use? Was the data that was put in for comparison purposes accurate? Yeah. So there's a, whole, a lot that, you know, so that, that's why I just say, it's why we try to teach our students, just be skeptical, yeah. right? If something sounds 
way too good or wait if something right. is a slam dunk that is right. automatic hmm. um I, 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 you know for me to look take a deeper look at that yeah and i think that the other challenge with dna for innocence projects and there's kind of an irony in that we are using dna technology and at the same time saying that dna is fallible that in this case we got a new <laughs> dna result but that old dna result is wrong right, right. so i i think that that's a there's some tension there yeah. that courts challenge us on, that prosecutors challenge us on, that we struggle with. But I think it comes down to what Melissa said, that humans are fallible, that no process, no scientific process, no legal process uh, is perfect, and that we all make mistakes uh, and that the computer can say one thing and then a human can interpret that to mean something else. But I think that that is a big struggle for us because the innocence movement does show that DNA works, that it helps, that it is the gold standard when used appropriately, mm -hmm. when those limitations are understood and appreciated and taken into account. But I think that's the, the hard part of our job is trying to use new science, but use it in the right way, use it appropriately and still say this new version of that old science is right, but that old science that we use to convict someone is wrong. Yeah. So there's there's some challenging tension yeah. <laughs> in our work. Um, well, we've, we've, we've gotten very much in, in the weeds, and so um, <laughs> I was thinking maybe we could wrap up by sort of stepping back a little bit. Um, and and uh, hearing you each talk about your relationship to the work, which is sort of what you've been talking about the whole time, and I hear you both being very fascinated with the problems and, and very interested in solving all these different problems that you're faced with in your work and, and, and just being generally um, engaged with the legal process. And then I've also heard you talk about issues of justice and injustice and, and fairness and... Um, and so I'd just love to hear you each talk about that and hope maybe we could start with you. Um, what brings you to this work, which sounds like can be frustrating and exhausting and, and also very gratifying. Yes, it's definitely all of that. And I went to law school knowing that I wanted to be an innocence lawyer and work in the innocence project at my law school and then as a career because to me, I cannot think of anything worse than sitting in prison when you are innocent. Mm -hmm. And I think that we have to devote resources to freeing those people. So that's my my big injustice that I mm -hmm. see myself as being able to hopefully in some way help correct. And uh, I so think a, I'm a sense of injustice sort of drives you to. How did you know about the Innocence Project? I mean, is that were you like one of these undergrads here who volunteers at the? Uh, no, For I didn't volunteer with an Innocence Project as an undergrad, but I was a criminology, law, and society major at University of uh, California, Irvine. And in the criminology department there, they focus a lot on the on miscarriages of justice, on forensic issues. Mm -hmm. uh, and kind of from my first day as a criminology major, uh, forensic science was debunked for me. I actually went into college thinking that I was interested in potentially being a forensic scientist. That's what I loved about my chemistry course in, in high school, and I was fascinated by CSI. I was an avid CSI uh, watcher. CSI. CSI Miami, specifically. <laughs> oh, yes. But then uh, day one, 
I learned about all of the problems with forensic science uh, and basically the the fallibility of humans doing forensic science work. And uh, that got me, it just kind of opened my eyes to the injustice in the criminal justice system, in a system that is supposed to be providing justice mm-hmm. for the community and yet can create so many problems and so so much unfairness and, and damage. Uh, and yeah. so that shifted my focus to the law and to working with clients directly to help free them from uh, incarceration. Mm-hmm. But then also uh, I worked as a, a summer associate at a civil rights law firm in Chicago uh, that also houses the Exoneration Project, the Innocence Clinic that I worked at. But they work on post-exoneration civil wrongful conviction cases, trying to compensate people for the time spent in mm. prison. And that's another, I think, one of my focuses and, and one of my passions. But I think the problem with that work, uh, there's no problem. I think that's great work. But you have to first exonerate someone in order to get them compensation. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's what I went back to. This is where I feel the need is yeah. and and where I want to devote at least the first two years during my fellowship of my career to doing is working with those currently incarcerated mm-hmm. uh, clients who are claiming innocence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what she you, said. <laughs> what yeah. she said. She said it. <laughs> CSI well, also. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I came to the work um, from a little bit different path mm-hmm. because the innocence movement was was just gaining speed when I was in law school. And when you get out of law school, the first thing you do is just try to find a job. Yeah. Um, when I went to law school, I went because I wanted to represent people who um, were marginalized. I was not interested in going to law school to join a law firm um, and represent white collar crime or mm-hmm. anything like that. I knew I wanted to go work uh, with people who were who were accused of 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 breaking the law. Those were my people. I knew I wanted to, that. I just knew that's what I wanted to do. And so my first, when I graduated from law school, I hung my own shingle and did court appointed work. And I saw through, through that work, how important it was to have boots on the ground, to have people who are lawyers who would listen to their clients. Um, the first client that I had, it actually, um, was someone who was homeless and uh, they were trying to uh, take her children um, through the through the civil process mm-hmm. and I had to walk the streets to give her the notice of hearing to make sure that she would come to the hearing and I can remember another attorney saying why are you doing that mm-hmm. you shouldn't social work your cases and I, that stuck with me I was yeah. thinking why would you not social work your cases because cases criminal cases aren't one dimensional you know, people get to where they are. People are accused of crimes because of a whole host of, of issues. Mm-hmm. So why would you not help your client with as much as you possibly could? Um, so from there, I went to the public defender's office and really got a deep learning of the criminal law system in, in West Virginia. And um, from there, I went on to post-conviction work. And then I learned about the innocence movement. And for me... Of course, it's about justice, but really it's about fair play. I think Mm -hmm. I've always wanted to have a fair playing field. And when someone is wrongfully convicted, it's because the the rules went askew somewhere. Mm -hmm. Somehow, the rules of fair play didn't apply to this person, whether it was police misconduct, 
whether it was a prosecutor trying to stretch the bounds of forensic science, or whether it was a criminal defense attorney who was literally asleep at the counsel table. Mm -hmm. Something went wrong, and that's what my justice is. My justice is trying to correct that yeah. that fair play. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming in, and, and thank you for doing the work, too. Uh, it's really, really amazing. Well, thank you for inviting us. We can talk about this stuff for hours. Um, I you know, know. <laughs> and I, I wish I would like to do another hour. So maybe next year I can have you back in. Yeah. Well, and, you, and we can talk some more. You had said that we got into the weeds, and I had I was laughing to myself because I feel like that's where Hope and I live. We just uh, live in the weeds. Mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. In all the details. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. If you enjoyed that conversation and would like to learn more about the West Virginia Innocence Project, you can visit their website, www.wvinnocenceproject.law.wvu.edu. You can also follow them on Twitter at wvinnocence. I also want to add that they've just recently opened their link for undergraduate applications to be screeners, which is something that um, Hope and Melissa talked about to screen applications for, uh, for cases that they're going to handle. So any undergraduates listening, if that sounded like interesting work to do, please do seek out that application. Thank you all for tuning in this week, and um, I'm looking forward to being with you soon. This podcast is a joint production of the WVU Humanities Center and the DA, and produced by Nick Kratzis and Savon Hunter. <laughs>